1 Peter is about that lively hope, that hope that is alive because of Jesus Christ. He is alive, and therefore we have a hope that is very much alive in him. Our verse that we have been looking at as a theme verse is 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are now in chapter 2. Chapter 1 was powerful as we considered some, some uh, uh, notes about who we are, our identity, and the perspective we should have as those who are sojourners, chosen of God, but sojourners here. So much to praise God for. Chapter 1 goes into so much. And then how to live, how to think. And uh, then into chapter 2, uh, he, he continues really with getting a little bit more practical as he's going to help in the next couple of chapters of Peter, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, will help us to see how this plays out in some practical areas of everyday life. As we get into this uh, chapter, we're now in verse 9. Verse 9 is where we'll pick it up. The Bible says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're really going to get through verse 11 today. I'd like to read that last uh, verse 11 again. The Bible says, and Peter implores us, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Lord, help us as we look at your word, and I pray that you would help us as believers to win in this war. Lord, I pray that we would know how to, how to fight, how to fight from victory, how to claim that win. I pray that you would give encouragement to each one who has been losing this war and give hope that there is a possibility, not just a possibility, but the real potential in Christ to have victory in our life. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Abstain, he says. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. In Acts 15... There were some questions brought to the apostles, what should we do about this, and certain uh, questions about the law, and they got their heads together, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, they did say there are a few things you should abstain from, uh, and one of them was fornication. And they said, if you do this, you will do well. You know, there are things that Christians need to say no concerning. Some parents don't like to tell their children no. And if you can't say no to your kids, one day you will regret that. Uh, love sometimes says no. And God, in his love and mercy for us, his children, 
is telling us there are certain things we have to say no in regards to. Because they are waging war, and they are going to destroy you from the inside out if you don't abstain. We hear a lot about war these days. But my question for us to consider this morning is not about, have, have you ever heard of the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine, Russia? The question for us this morning is this, are you at war? Are you at war, and if so, are you winning? Throughout the entire New Testament, there is a theme of warfare. The imagery of spiritual warfare is used uh, throughout various places, and this reinforces in our minds that we are in a battle. It's a battle that we must fight. It's a battle that Jesus has already given us the victory concerning, but we have to fight through and claim that victory. Christians are soldiers. Peter told Timothy, No man that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this world, that he may please him who hath called him to be a soldier. Did you know that God has called you to be a soldier? But I'll let you say Marine, that's fine. Okay, but the rest of us were soldiers, all right, Christian soldiers in God's army, Marines, whatever, okay. You know, we sing the song, Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching as to War. You know, there's so many allusions in, in, our, in our songs, in our hymns, in, in our Christian experience of, of, of Christian spiritual warfare, and so the question is, how's it going? How's the battle going in your soul? Just a few verses as we get started here, just to kind of warm into this thought. Ephesians 6 talks about the whole armor of God. Why do you need the whole armor of God if there's not a battle raging? Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And I think sometimes we think about that verse, and it seems like something that is happening way out there. But Peter brings it home as to where these principalities and powers and rulers are, are warring. It, it, they're warring for our soul, and there's a war that's raging in our soul. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Again, weapons of our warfare. What do you need weapons for if you're not in a battle? And then 1 Peter 5, Lord willing, we'll get there later in this series, but we'll jump there now. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. There is again this imagery of fighting with a roaring lion, 
resisting him steadfast in the faith, lifting that shield of faith as he comes with his fiery darts. But I'm glad we're on the victory side. Romans 8 helps us with that. In verse 37, it says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We don't fight for victory, as one preacher said. We fight from victory. We're going out to claim what is already rightfully ours. We already have Jesus on our side and in us. We're on the victory side. Back to our text in 1 Peter 11. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Do you know about this war? A war within. We talk about unrest in certain countries, but have you ever had unrest right here? What causes that? I can remember being in high school and uh, having some struggles in high school and I had some friends who definitely did not know the Lord, didn't care for the things of the Lord, and a lot of different influences, and you put all those things together, and it made for some, some struggles in my life, and I remember this war raging in my soul, and knowing that not everything was right between me and my Savior, not everything was right between me and my parents, and this war just continued to rage. And I knew I needed to talk to my dad. He was very good about talking to us boys. I've mentioned that here before. He would oftentimes grab us to go for a drive, and that would be our little debrief. Hey, isn't that something they do in battle as well? They debrief, and the dad would say, I want to know how you doing, what are you dealing with, what have you been exposed to, what are your friends doing, just the whole thing. He would, he would talk it all through. Well, there must have been a time where dad had gotten busy and, and, and we hadn't had that talk and I just felt like I was trying to avoid him and I realized this isn't good. And so I knew my dad would be up for the paper route. He was a pastor, but he did a paper route at like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. So I slept on the couch that night so that I'd be there when he came down the stairs. I remember I didn't really sleep at all on that couch. It was just war in my soul, raging. Am I going to deal with this stuff? What is dad going to say? I'm going to get roasted. This is going to be over. I'd be better off just hiding this. Keep it concealed. Nobody needs to know. And the war just raged all night long. What are you going to do? I I need help. And I can't get through this on my own. I need dad, but he's he's going to be mad. And oh, all night long, the war raging for my soul, in, in my soul, and for my soul, I should say. And I remember dad walking down the stairs. And I scared him to death. <laughs> he about fell down the last three, three steps, 3.34 in the morning, whatever it was. John, what are you doing? I was like, Dad, I thought I might help you with the paper route this morning. And he said, oh, okay. And he knew what that meant. And we had a good talk. You know what I found? Dad was not furious with me for my struggles. He was not furious with me for the things that I was dealing with, he was very, very glad that I had invited him into my war, into the battle as a battle buddy. He didn't kick me when I was down. We talked through it. We got a plan. Uh, I asked for forgiveness and various things. I don't even honestly right now remember all that was there. 
it's, it's gone. It's under the blood. I mean, I remember there were several things. I think I remember a couple of things, but I know that, that I don't even remember it all. And I remember getting freedom and seeing that battle that was raging won. Do you have, maybe even this morning, a war raging in your soul? God's will for you is to win. Peter's preaching about hope. He's trying to help people have hope. And if you have a war raging in your soul, Peter wants you to know, the Holy Spirit wants you to know that there is hope for you. Three things we'll cover from this passage this morning. First of all, your identity will help you win the war in your soul. Your identity. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And we'll stop there for a second. Did you notice how many facets of our identity we just ran through? That is like he is just turning a diamond and showing all the different facets of, of, of its beauty. He is trying to point the believer who feels hopeless, who feels helpless, who feels like the war is out of control and they can't win. He is starting not by condemning them and saying, you're a wicked sinner, you're a wicked person or whatever. No, he is starting by saying, I want to remind you who you are. I want to remind you where you've come from. I want to remind you about all the different aspects that make up who you are in Christ and your Christian character. And he just keeps turning that diamond very quickly. But not just that, I want you to notice that this identity that will help us to be able to win this war this identity is all 100% review. Every single thing in, that, in that, those verses, every single one of those things we have already covered in this First Peter series. I like that. The Spirit of God knows when to circle back. You and I have very short memories. Sometimes we hear things and we nod our head and we smile and say, yeah, yeah, that's good, that's good. And then later on, like, ah, no, 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 forget it, that's not me. And he knows to circle back. I mean, just think about this. So chosen generation, where have we heard that before? Well, we talked about uh, choosing just a, a couple of verses before when it says that Jesus is the chosen stone. It's, it refers to him as the elect stone. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 2 and verse 6 of chapter 2, we saw that last week. So we've, talk, we've seen the whole thing of choosing there, but what about us? 1 Peter 1, 2, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen. The, the, the first, the second, the second verse in this epistle, he makes sure that the people know you have been chosen by Almighty God. Just as Jesus Christ was chosen. There are no accidents. You're not some, uh, some oops or whatever. We'll try to work this person uh, out and make something out of this mess. No, you are chosen. You're a chosen generation. He has something for you. So he reviews right off the, uh, right off the bat with chapter 1, verse 2 
a chosen generation, but what else? He says, a royal priesthood. Well, where have we heard that before? In chapter 2, verse 5. He says that ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to Jesus, acceptable uh, to God by Jesus Christ. So we've already seen that, and he's coming back again. You're a chosen generation, and you are a royal priesthood. In other words, as a priest, you can come straight to me boldly and offer spiritual sacrifices that are a sweet savor to God. What else is he reviewing about our identity? We're a holy people, a holy nation. Well, where have we seen that before? Chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And he's circling back to all of these nuggets that he already laid in the foundation of, this, of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and reminding us in one quick succession you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, a holy, separate nation. The word holy means set apart unto, set apart from the wickedness of the world and the fleshly desires and so forth. And we're set apart to the Lord as his own prized possession. And that's the next verse, uh, the next phrase, a peculiar people. I love that. It just sounds funny. A peculiar people. And uh, the, the King James English, uh, back in those days, peculiar was used a little bit differently than it is today. Peculiar meant a special, unique, purchased possession. It, it, peculiar in the sense of just, just so, uh, so uniquely special. But it's funny to me because the way we use peculiar, that still fits. <laughs> it still fits today. Christians are a little bit peculiar. We're a little bit weird compared to this world. We don't quite fit in, and I'm glad that God sees us as special and unique and possessed of Him. But yeah, we do feel a bit peculiar at times, and that's okay. No matter how you want to take that word peculiar, it's all good. You're His. Well, where have we learned this before? We'll circle back. Chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the redemption of us as his special, unique, peculiar possessions. And he's circling back to it now in chapter 2. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, special acquisition, purchased possession of God. Well, what else does he say? He, he says, you are a mercy-bestowed people. What did the Bible say there? Which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We, have, we are, a, we are a, a people that has had incredible mercy bestowed upon us individually and also corporately. Where is this theme originally? Well, chapter 1, verse 3. We're circling back to chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. And he revisits that theme again in our text this morning in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He has given us abundant, undeserved mercy. This should motivate us. But what else about our identity? And I love this final identity phrase. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, verse 11, as strangers and pilgrims. This goes back to chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, and so forth and so on. Peter, an apostle to the strangers who are scattered abroad. And now he comes back to that theme and says, that wasn't just the way I like to start my, my, uh, my, my letters. That's who you are. You are the scattered strangers, strangers and pilgrims who need to recognize this world is not your home. You are citizens of another country, and you are just living here to do a job. And when you take all of these identity points in rapid succession, let's do it again, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, special, purchased possession, a mercy-bestowed people, and you are strangers and pilgrims. Now you are in a place where you know who you are to be able to fight the war. Some people don't fight the war because they don't know who they are, they don't know what team they're on, and, and they've just gotten so beaten down, it's like, okay, devil, just walk on me. He says, no, stand up, soldier. This is who you are. This is who you need to see yourself as. When you look in the mirror, you need to see these truths applied to you. And from that identity, we fight. I am more inclined, and you are more inclined, to lose the battle raging in our souls when we forget who we are. You know, Elijah, he forgot who he was when he went into that cave and he had to be ministered to by the, by the angel. He'd be nourished. And he had to come back to, wait a minute, who am I again? Oh yeah, I'm God. I'm a prophet. I have a job. Oh, yeah. And he gives him a new commission and says, go out and get Elisha and keep doing what I called you to do. Sometimes we forget who we are. Jonah. Jonah forgot who he was. And the Lord comes to him. And says, doest thou well to be angry? Just like Elijah, he comes to Elijah and he says, what doest thou here, Elijah? In other words, it didn't make sense. It doesn't line up with who you are. What are you doing here, Elijah? And over here, Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? What are you, what are you angry for? Weren't you called to see people reached? And now you're angry that I'm reaching them? You've forgotten who you are. You have to get back to it. And remember, the more I'm inclined to lose, I am more inclined to lose the battle for my soul when I forget who I am in Christ. 
I'll tell you, discouragement, depression, and hopelessness, these things give way to courage when I'm settled in my identity. My identity protects me on various fronts in the battle for my soul. And let me just give you this real quickly. The, the word chosen protects me in this war. How? Because it, it protects me against the accuser's lies. That I'm nothing, that I'm worthless, that I'm hopeless, that I'm a big mistake, that I'm some accident and God has nothing for me. No, 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 no. I am chosen. Therefore, if I will get a hold of that identity, I am protected from those lies. What about the matter of the identity of being a priest? This protects me when I think that God doesn't want to hear me anymore. When I think that I've lost all of my access to God. When I feel that He is far off and unaccessible. I am protected of God by this identity. I am a royal priest, part of the royal priesthood who doesn't come on his own merit, but comes on the merit of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Jesus is my access to allow me to come boldly even when I feel like there's nothing in me that could come at all. Your identity protects you. What about this matter of holiness? A holy nation. The word holy, as it pertains to my identity, protects me against thinking that I am my own Holy means set apart, consecrated. I think we sometimes think of holy as just uh, this goody-two-shoes mentality. Holier than thou, that is not what holiness means. Holiness means uh, I've been consecrated to him. I am not of this world. I am totally his, set apart, separated to God, and that protects me from the pull of the world. Do you see how your identity protects you? Chosen protects you. Priest protects you. Holy protects you. Peculiar. That helps me too. That protects me against thinking that there is nothing special about me. And indeed, there is nothing special about me, but there's something very special about what God is doing in me and what he wants to do through me. He says, I am unique with a unique calling. I have a unique plan and a unique purpose. Peculiar helps me. This word peculiar, his own special possession, helps me in the war. This matter of one who's obtained mercy. As I receive my identity as being one who's obtained mercy, this protects me from pride. Pride so quickly comes into our life. Oh, I am now chosen, royal priesthood, I am holy. Uh, hang on. You have obtained mercy, pal. And you deserved nothing more than God's wrath. And I'll tell you, if we get filled with pride, we have lost the war in our soul. Satan would love to fill us with, with pride, even spiritual pride. Obtained mercy. One who's obtained mercy protects me from the pride as I humbly remember that what I deserve is nothing more than God's wrath, but instead I have received his gracious mercy. What about this identity of a stranger and a pilgrim? That protects me in this war from getting too settled down here on earth and just so deeply entrenched and rooted in all that's going on that I have no more hard drive space 
uh, for things of heaven and for things of my eternal purpose and what God wants me to do. Satan would love us to get so networked here that we just don't have any time, breath, or energy for what is going to matter there. Strangers and pilgrims, this identity protects me and adjusts my perspective from temporal to eternal. Your identity, friend, will help you win the war in your soul, and without it, you're not going to even know whose side you're on or why you're fighting in the first place, or is it even worth it? And so many Christians just come to that conclusion. It ain't worth it, because I don't know who I am. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Get back to the biblical identity, and remember that Peter knew something that you and I need to know, and it's this. You can't just give them the identity one time. You have to circle back, and circle back, and circle back. Number two, your purpose will help you win the war in your soul. Your identity will help you win the war in your soul, and your purpose will help you win the war in your soul. You see that he says this, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Here's the purpose statement. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's my purpose? What's my purpose? You know, sometimes we have goals and aspirations and ambitions, and we say, boy, God, if you'll let me do this for you, oh, this would be so great. And God doesn't get as excited about our ambitions as we do. And he says, you know, that's nice and all, but I'd rather this happen through your life because that will show forth my praises in a way that the other thing that you dreamed up never could. You and I, according to this passage, have a very simple purpose. Your life is to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of, his, out of, out of darkness into his marvelous light. We always talk about what's the supreme end of man is the glory of God. This is another way of saying that. This verse reminds me of another verse. Jesus was speaking when he said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Well, wait a minute now, preacher. I thought we're not supposed to do our works to be seen of men. That's true. You're not to do it for that purpose. Everything I do should not be for the purpose of pleasing you folks and making it something just so spectacular in your sight. But that does not mean that you guys are blind. You can see. And that which I do should be for him and for his glory, but that which is seen of men should be that which clearly gives God uh, the praise. It should be praiseworthy. You know, I've been thinking, because of Brother Full of Love going home to be with the Lord, I've been thinking about uh, the funeral and what I'm going to say and what, how that's going to go. And every time we have a funeral, it's an opportunity for all of us to reflect on our lives, on what we're doing, on eternity. And it's a good thing, by the way. Don't avoid funerals. I know some folks never, ever, ever go to funerals. Funerals are a gift to the living. 
There are so many opportunities for us to look within, for us to uh, be challenged and helped. But not only that, funerals are an opportunity for 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 to take place. You know, as I was sitting with the family and they were talking about memories of Al, they were showing forth his praises. And I firmly believe that in the funeral on Saturday, that will continue. Uh, when I say his praises, I mean God's praises. They were showing forth God's praises through the life of an individual. That's what funerals should be. They should be an opportunity for our light to so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But we have to live in a way that, that is possible. Folks, I want you to think every day you wake up, you exist to show forth the praises of God. What are you doing today that can show forth the praises of God? And this is where it really gets real because you might be like, ah, oh, but I'm slowing down and I used to be in the bus ministry and I used to take the kids to camp. Well, I remember uh, being the bus driver. You know, I, I wish I could be where with the kids this week and I wish I could do all that stuff and what can I do now? Hey, you can still show forth the praises of God. Oh, but I've got health problems and now all I do is doctor's visits. You can show forth the praises of God. Doris was telling me that she and Al were in the hospital 60 times in the last three months. Six zero. And she talked about all the people that they witnessed to. And Al had a tremendous testimony through that. You don't have to drive the church bus to Bill Rice Ranch to show forth the praises of God, although you can. That's great if you can. Pray for Brother Joe and Brother CJ. But you can show forth the praises of God on your way to the hospital and back. You can show forth the praises of God on hospice. You can show forth the praises of God in the middle of a fiery trial. And sometimes, folks, there is more that can come out of that than the most glorious night of soul winning downtown. You exist to show forth his praises, and that means anywhere you go, everywhere you go, God intends to use you for his glory. Galatians 1.23 is a, a great little verse. Speaking of the Apostle Paul, they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth, preacheth the faith which he once destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Verse 24, and they glorified God in me. That ought to be the prayer of every single Christian. Now don't mess it up. And they glorified me in me. No, 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 no. You just messed it up. Okay. That's where our flesh gets in there. Can I get a little glory here? Come on, I worked real hard for that. Can I get a little recognition, please? No. Paul had his world changed, turned upside down. He went through a lot of trials, but he was glad he could hang on to this little nugget of truth. They glorified God in what was happening in my life. And that is something that is not just reserved for the Apostle Paul. That is to be the experience of every believer. 
what can we glorify God about in this particular passage? Well, I was not a people, but now I'm the part of the people of God, the verse says. I was without mercy, but now I've found mercy. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I was in darkness, the Bible says in verse 9. But I've been called out of that into His marvelous light. I was bound, but now I'm free. There is so much to give God glory for in your life. You can show forth His praises. You exist to show forth His praises. And God is glorified when His plan goes forward in your life. Acts 26, 18 says, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And let me tell you, when God does that, and when he did that in the book of Acts, transferring people from darkness to light, people glorified God in those situations. I want to encourage you, friend, as you fight this war, you have to be about your purpose. The war is waging in your soul. The war is waging for your soul. There is things from without, things from within. There's doubts, there's fiery darts, there's sin, there's temptations, there's all kinds of stuff that's warring. How are we going to fight? You've got to first know your identity, every facet of it that will protect you in this battle. Circle back again and circle back again and renew and refresh and remind yourself of who you are and remind yourself of your purpose. What am I here to do? I'm not here for me. I'm here to show the glory of God and to sing forth His praises. Why am I dwelling in the, in the, in the tents of ease and, and pitching my tent toward Sodom as Lot did? I'm here to shine before men that they would see the good works of God and glorify Him in heaven. Let your testimony shine. Your testimony is one of the most powerful ways that you and I can give glory to God. And it's one of the ways that we win the war in our soul by staying God-focused and focusing on what is praiseworthy in my life. And finally, so number one, your, your identity will help you win the war in your soul. Number two, your purpose, showing forth His praise, will help you win the war in your soul. And thirdly and finally, your single-mindedness will help you win the war in your soul single-mindedness. Why? Because verse 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain. Abstain from, from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He said, you've got to know who you are and what you're here for, and then stay single-minded and cut that out. And cut out anything that's not going where you're going. Cut out anything that is keeping you from God's plan for your life and keeping you from showing forth His praises through your life. Abstain. What does that word abstain mean? It means to hold oneself off, to refrain from. It is an implied self-control. Now we know it's not just self-control. It's the spirit that we are depending on. You and I can't do it in our own flesh. We've got to have Him. But it is us who has to make that decision to yield to Him. 
and to, to say, I don't have to do this. I am not a victim. Some people will say, oh, well, I, it's just in my family. My whole family struggled with this. All my family was addicts, so I'm an addict too. All my family had anger, so I have anger too. Uh, you know, and folks, we make so many excuses and we literally just turn our back on the provision of the Spirit of God for our lives, for the victory. If God says abstain, then that means you can abstain. He wouldn't tell you to abstain if abstaining was not in your DNA. I want you to abstain from anger, unless you're Irish, because we all know. I mean, yeah, okay. I want you to abstain from alcoholism, unless you're German or whatever. I, I, I'm sorry if you're German. There's just these different things that people say, all these stigmas that we give. Folks, he just said, here is who you are. Here's what you're called to do. Now stay single-minded to that. And as you stay single-minded to your purpose, you will be abstaining. I, I remember uh, when I first traveled on an evangelistic team. I remember that uh, I got very busy doing uh, the ministry and, and serving the Lord. And I, 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 I believe it was about oh, eight or ten weeks in, I said, man, my thought life has just been like better than I can ever remember. I've not even been trying. I've not even been like quoting verses about thoughts and you know, I've not been even working on the thought life. What's been going on? Well, I was so busy, so single-minded doing what God called me to do and being who he'd called me to be that there was just an inherent protection in that single-mindedness. The refraining or abstaining, sometimes we see that as an, oh, I can't do it. I've tried. Back up from point three, and you focus on point one and point two, and see if point three does not come much more naturally. It is an internal thing, folks. You're not going to just turn off sin. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? There's a war in the soul. Oh, no problem. I got the switch right here. What were you saying? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Just turn it off? No, 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 it doesn't happen like that. But there is a way, if you back up to the first point of identity and let the second point of purpose flow out of that, that third point of abstaining will be much more natural. There are some things that Christians abstain from that they don't even try to abstain from. It just happens because God has made you so, so free, so new, so alive. I remember talking to uh, one of my working buddies when I was in Bible college, and he just kept saying to me, I cannot imagine my life without alcohol. He said, I, I don't know, how, how do you get through a day? How do you party? How do you have fun? How do you sleep? He's like, Alcohol helps me do everything I do in life. It's like, even if, my, if I, just, I digest my food, I mean, I can't sleep without it, I can't have fun without it, I can't do anything without it. How do you live without it? And I said, to be honest with you, I don't even think about alcohol. I mean, it's just never been something in my life. And I, I'm following the Lord, and I'm doing what God wants me to do. And he couldn't believe that. Folks, you know, there, are, there is truth to when you just follow what you should follow. There are some things that will just fall off. 
There are other things that we'll have to focus on that are more of a stronghold. But there is, the, the matter of abstaining is, is not insurmountable. To abstain gives the idea that one is giving up his rights to a thing. You might think, I have a right to this. Well, maybe I want to give up that right. You could participate, but you choose not to. And it is single-mindedness. I will willfully pass over and deny myself because I've chosen something better. This is not a popular concept today. Culture says, I should have it because I deserve it. I shouldn't have to go without blah, 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 blah. But Christianity says, I don't need it because it's not a part of who I am, what I'm doing, or where I'm going, and I have so much more. I don't need him. I don't need it. I have him. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I, sh I myself should be a castaway. These are countercultural verses. Deny yourself? <gasps> Every psychiatrist just had a heart attack. You know, you don't deny yourself. You pamper yourself and you express yourself and you give yourself everything you want. That's a good way. That's a good way to destroy everything God wants for you. Paul said, I keep under my body. He wasn't all about, I just want to express myself and be free to follow my heart. The Bible says, he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. James 1, 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Single-mindedness is important, folks, because if you don't have single-mindedness, you have double-mindedness. And if you have double-mindedness, you are unstable. And we live in a society of unstable people. We have the most mental instability ever in our society, the most emotional instability. We have all kinds of instability, and it comes from the war that is waging in our soul that we refuse to win biblically. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You can expect to be unstable financially. You can expect to be unstable emotionally and mentally. You can expect to be unstable relationally if you are double-minded. And folks, I'm telling you what, double-mindedness usually is, it happens because of a lie. And the lie is, I can have Jesus and a little bit of this, and I'll figure out how to make it work. But it doesn't work. It brings with it complexities. It brings with it a web of deceit. It brings with it all kinds of consequences. And you have to mitigate so many factors. You wear yourself out. You break yourself down. And the war of a double-minded individual rages. There's no peace. There's no rest. That's why he says, get back to who you are. Get back to what you're supposed to be doing. And let these things fall off. Abstain. Be single-minded abstain but fleshly lusts real quickly what are fleshly lusts it's that which is pertaining to the flesh that which is temporal unregenerate carnal fleshly lusts are that earnest desire that impure desire 
passions akin to what you had before you were saved. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. These lusts that are contrary, these are the lusts that we need to let go of and let them die. They burn in the soul. And if you've ever felt like your soul was on fire, that's because it was, it is on fire. Lust is a fire. And it consumes. And you're going to have to use the water of His Spirit. You need a new appetite. You need a new identity and a new purpose. It wars against the soul. Abstain from fleshly lust, these passions that burn for that which is forbidden, that keep you from doing the things that you would. They war against the soul. What is the soul? It's the seed of the feelings, the desires, and the affections. It's our heart. The Bible says in Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do you realize what happens when you let the war rage in your heart and you have this heart of unbelief? Eventually, you are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And after a while, some of you may not even notice the war anymore because you've become hardened to it. And you're so used to just the, the dichotomy. You're so used to the double-mindedness. You're so used to these things, but you don't realize the havoc is still there. The scars are still there. And eventually the bottom's going to fall out of it. And you're going to be in a mess. He says we should exhort one another daily. Daily. Lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It is a godly, loving friend who comes to you and says, Brother, I've been praying for you. I'm burdened for you. You know, I've noticed you're struggling with this. I'm happy to pray with you about that. Don't you say, Get off of me. I'm not your ministry. Who do you think you are? That's pride. Let someone come in alongside you and say, hey, can I carry that with you? Can I pray with you? Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens. And the Bible says, he that hardeneth his neck, he that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. <clears throat> Hard hearts will eventually break, and when that happens, it can be very ugly much better to just soften than have to be broken. Ephesians 4.17 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Do you realize what he's saying there? He is describing how unsaved people think and how unsaved people walk and he's saying, yeah, they're bad people, aren't they? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't walk like that. Don't walk with them. Don't follow them. In other words, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're scot-free. You can still end up following the wrong crowd, and you can end up being just like them in a way, having your understanding darkened and having yourself being alienated from the, 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 the life that God has for you. 
You can be affected by their blindness. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. What this tells us, folks, is this. Uh, Christians are capable of quite a pile of sin. And sometimes we Christians don't want want to admit to that. And when we see somebody who is struggling with sin, a lot of Christians just want to jump to this conclusion, and and I don't like it when we do this because I don't believe it's biblical and I don't believe it's helpful. Somebody says, oh, yeah, so-and-so, oh, he's doing so poorly. I don't think he's saved. Why do we have to jump to that first thing? Is there a Bible reason why we have to jump to that? This would be a Bible reason why maybe we don't have to jump to that. And recognize as soon as we call someone's salvation into question, we just took out the most essential building block from which to build upon to help them. Well, what if they're not saved, preacher? Well, I'm not going to declare them saved. I'm not going to declare them unsaved either. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that. We get them in the Word, we take them through the Word, and the Holy Spirit does the work. And I've had people in that process recognize I am saved, I need to get right. I've had other people in that process say, you know what, I don't think I ever got the first building block. I don't think I've ever been saved. Okay, let's get saved. Let's come to Jesus. But folks, what this is telling us is this, Christians can, in this war in the soul, follow this whole crowd of darkness He says, you have not so learned Christ. If so be ye have heard him, and that's a big if, okay, right? If so be ye have heard him and have been taught of him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And that's a long passage, but it fits with 1 Peter so well. There is a war being waged in your soul and that which you give yourself to will dull you if you let it it will alienate you it will blind you and it can even bring you to a place where you are like the world in a sense where you are so calloused you're almost past feeling but he says i don't want you to walk that way you have not so learned christ if you know him if you know him and have been taught by him follow him abstain that word put off is the same idea of abstain put off of that and put on the new man yield to him let the spirit of god renew your mind fleshly lust damage the soul it creates a dichotomy that leads to double life a life of hypocrisy a life of secrets a life of masquerading a life of pretense and that breaks down who you are christians when we face a trial We have to be able to face it with some confidence that God is here and God will see me through. But when you have this double life that you're living where you're not abstaining, you're indulging, you are breaking down all of your absolutes and then when you face a trial and your health falls apart, you're not sure if you can trust the Lord, you're not sure if if He's going to see you through, you're not sure of anything because you have already broken down the single-mindedness which is so important for making it through trials, for making it through life. You know, fleshly lust does damage to our soul. It erodes absolutes. It erodes morals and beliefs. It unsettles the conscience. It brings stress of guilt to bear upon the body 
and mind and soul day by day, and no Christian was built for that. Fleshly lust invites also spiritual warfare into your soul. It's like saying, hey, Satan, come here. I left the back door open for you. As if it's not hard, hard enough to fight the devil and his minions. We're just going to go open the back door. Uh, we got this huge fortress, huge fortress and gates and so forth, and we're going to lower the drawbridge and bring the gate up and just let him in. That's what, we, that's what happens when we engage in, in fleshly lust and just let it go. And the Bible says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. And he is doing it, folks. We bring him in like the Trojan horse. Fleshly lust is that Trojan horse. It looks so good. looks so pleasing. We bring it right in past all of our defenses, and then it kills us. The war in the soul. Fleshly lust can be abstained from, and no one is helpless to resist. We need to remember that we're strangers and pilgrims sojourning here for a time. We need to remember our calling to show forth the praises of our Savior. We need to be single-minded here in this earthly pilgrimage. Guard your soul. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Friends, keep means guard. Guard your heart with all diligence. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Lay hold on your true identity. Embrace your purpose to show forth God's praises in your life through every trial, through every day, through everything. And by God's grace and His Spirit's help, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. And how are you going to do that? By nurturing single-mindedness. Nurture single-mindedness abstaining from fleshly lust that war against the soul. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us in this war to nurture that single-mindedness, to embrace our identity and our purpose, that you would help us to be free and have the victory that is trying to destroy us from within. Help us, Lord. I pray that you'd help now in the invitation, help us to, to deal with the sin that so easily besets us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I ask the piano to play just a brief uh, uh, hymn of invitation. And as God has dealt in your heart, would you respond to him, Christian, if you know the Lord is Savior? And there's a war raging in your soul. Would you talk to him about that? Would you yield? Are you willing to abstain as you embrace your identity and your purpose? Maybe there's somebody here who'd say, Preacher, I'm not sure I have the first building block. I'm not sure I'm saved. I don't think I can fight this battle because I don't think I have the, the Savior. If you're not sure you're saved, I'd love to help you be saved this morning and show you the Bible way of salvation. If there's someone like that, put your hand up. I'll pray for you. Pray for me, preacher. I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I've been born again. Pray for me. Anyone like that? Let's take a moment and pray. How long are you going to let the war in your soul rage when God has already given you the victory? Let's stand to our feet if we can. We'll dismiss in a word of prayer. Thank you for your attention this morning. Thank you for being here and your patience. Tonight at 6, we'll plan to break this down into some more application, to really get down to where we're living, what are we facing, and how do we see victory on a practical basis. I hope you can come back tonight at 6.
And we'll look forward to just seeing what God has for us. All right. Brother Caleb, would you close us in a word of prayer?